audio number 108, another sermon by George Whitfield, the greatest evangelist in American history. This sermon is entitled, The Lord, Our Light. In this sermon, George Whitfield makes it perfectly clear, as did Martin Luther in his 95 thesis, that the life of the new creation is a continual life of repentance or a continual state of the oil of joy from mourning over the evil proclivities of their heart. Now, to our fast food free will friends, this seems quite morbid. For our fast food free will friends are tweaked natural men, yet to be made a new creation with absolutely none of our fingerprints upon that creation. It is just like our natural birth. We have no control nor fingerprints on our natural birth. And we have no control over our spiritual birth, that is, being born again. We cannot accept or reject Christ no more than we could reject or accept our natural birth. And that is the way Jesus uses the word born or born again. It is only our theologians that can mess up that word by saying we have some amount of cooperation in our spiritual birth. Whereas common sense tells us if Jesus is going to use the word born, we as John Q. Public of America, being simple people, are going to think that our spiritual birth is just like our natural birth. It is something that we cannot accept or reject or have any cooperation in making it happen. As we have mentioned many times before, a dog and a cat have many similarities. They both have paws, they both can hear, they both can see, they both have fur, but they are totally different creatures. We can't take a dog and turn it into a cat, nor can we take a cat and turn it into a dog. But our fast food free will theologians want to take the natural man, tweak it, and try to make it a spiritual man, which would be like trying to make a dog meow or a cat bark or to try to make a cat wag its tail in friendship to its master as a dog does. It's not going to happen. The new creation is not a tweaked natural man. It is a creation of God with some similarities to the natural man, but it is brand new. Jesus is not into the remodeling business. He is only into new construction. The new creation is completely new construction with no fingerprints of our cooperation upon it. And the new creation is such that it has a characteristic of the oil of joy for mourning. Now, how many of us natural men have joy in mourning? But the new creation has the oil of joy in mourning. It's a paradoxical truth. And there are many different paradoxical truths within the new creation. It's the oil of joy for mourning. It is the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Our fast food free will friends don't want a spirit of heaviness while they're praising God. It doesn't fit with the character of a natural man no more than a dog trying to meow. But George Whitfield, in this sermon entitled The Lord Our Light, makes it perfectly clear that one of the characteristics of the new creation is that the new creation is in a state of mourning. And this can be proved 
from Isaiah 61. George Whitfield doesn't happen to mention this passage. Let us look at Isaiah 61, verse 3. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And why is that? In order that they might be called trees of righteousness. Now, we have mentioned many, many times that faith in the righteousness of God is the ticket into heaven. And what is the righteousness of God? But the passive and active obedience of Jesus Christ. His passive obedience, he, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, which means he kept the commandments perfectly while he was here on earth. He who knew no sin was made what sin? Made original sin. Why? In order that we might be made the righteousness of God. Adam, before he fell, was holy. And what does holy mean? Adam kept the commandments perfectly until he fell. How did he fall? He broke one commandment. So before he fell, Adam kept the commandments perfectly. After Adam was driven out of the garden, he took on a nature and likeness to Satan. But in order to get back into heaven, he would have to be holy or be able to follow the commandments perfectly as he did before he fell, which is impossible. Thus, the second Adam came to earth and not only took on hell for us, but fulfilled the commandments for us perfectly. And when we believe by faith in the righteousness of God, our Father in heaven looks down from heaven and sees his son's perfect obedience as the elect's perfect obedience, and thus he sees them as holy. But all they can see is the corruption in their own heart. And as former Mr. Morality, as a Christian, said, O wretched man that I am. And yet he wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament, knowing he had a very wretched heart. But he also knew that it was Christ's obedience that would get him into heaven. As long as he used the law, to condemn himself, use the law to point out the evil proclivities of his heart and demand perfection that he might be thrown to the feet of Jesus, crying out for mercy. And Jesus in his loving kindness would then lift him up and say unto him, be ye not afraid. My father in heaven's wrath has been subdued and he sees my perfect obedience for you as your own perfect obedience as long as you stay in a state of mourning over your sins. The oil of joy for mourning. 61.3 again, To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, in order that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Once we have faith in the righteousness of God, we are then called righteous because we are holy, because Christ's obedience has been imputed to us. So another way of saying that, instead of saying we are righteous, Isaiah is saying that we are trees of righteousness. 
being planted by the Lord, not in cooperation with us. It is the Lord that plants us. We have no fingerprints of cooperation on the new creation. And the day that we are made a new creation, like our natural birth, we have no fingerprints of cooperation on it. We know not the day, time, or place of our natural birth was going to occur, and we do not know the day, time, or place of our spiritual birth. It is something that happens to us. It is like an eight-year-old boy being blind from birth, but in his eight year, he was made to see. Will that boy ever forget that day, being in complete darkness for eight years, and now he can see? He'll never forget that day. And we, as new creations, will never forget the day that we were translated out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. So before we begin the message entitled, The Lord Our Light, by George Whitfield, let us review an excerpt from one of his other sermons entitled Method of Grace, where he makes it clear that we must be convicted not only of our acts of sin, but of our original sin and the sin of self-righteousness, as well as the sin of unbelief. We are all born in this world, not able to believe on the true Jesus. We will always pick a fast food free will Jesus rather than the true Jesus. And it is at the moment of our new creation that we are given a genuine or true faith to believe in the righteousness of God as our ticket into heaven, which justifies us in God's courtroom. Let us listen to an excerpt from George Whitfield's sermon entitled Method of Grace. Quote, if we look inwardly, we shall see enough of lusts and man's temper contrary to the temper of God. There is pride, malice, and revenge in all our hearts. And this temper cannot come from God. It comes from our first parent, Adam, who after he fell from God, fell out of God into the devil. However, therefore, some people may deny this, yet when conviction comes, all carnal reasonings are battered down immediately and the poor soul begins to feel and see the fountain from which all the polluted streams do flow. When the sinner is first awakened, he begins to wonder, how came I to be so wicked? The Spirit of God then strikes in and shows that he has no good thing in him by nature. Then he sees that he is altogether gone out of the way, that he is altogether become abominable, and the poor creature is made to live down at the foot of the throne of God and to acknowledge that God would be just to damn him, just to cut him off. Though he never had committed one actual sin in his life, did you ever feel and experience this, any of you? to justify God in your damnation, to own that you are by nature children of wrath and that God may justly cut you off though you never actually had offended him in all your life. If you were ever truly convicted, if your hearts were ever truly cut, if self were truly taken out of you, you would be made to see and feel this. And if you have never felt 
the weight of original sin. Do not call yourself Christians. I am verily persuaded original sin is the greatest burden of a true convert. This ever grieves the regenerate soul, the sanctified soul. The indwelling of sin in the heart is the burden of a converted person, a new creation. It is the burden of a true Christian. He continually cries out, Oh, who will deliver me from the body of this death? This indwelling corruption in my heart. This is that which disturbs a poor soul most. And therefore, if you never felt this inward corruption, if you never saw that God might justly curse you for it, indeed, my dear friends, you may speak peace to your hearts. But I fear, nay, I know, there is no true peace. Further, before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only be troubled for the sins of your life, the sin of your nature, but likewise for the sins of your best duties and performances. When a poor soul is somewhat awakened by the terrors of the Lord, then the poor creature being born under the covenant of works flies directly to a covenant of works again. And as Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of the garden and sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, so the poor sinner, when awakened, flies to his duties and performances to hide himself from God and goes to patch up a righteousness of his own. Says he, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I will do all I can. And then certainly Jesus Christ will have mercy on me. But before you can speak peace to your heart, you must be brought to see that God may damn you for the best prayer you ever put up. You must be brought to see that all your duties, all your self-righteousness, as the prophet so elegantly expresses it, put them all together, are so far from recommending you to God, are so far from being any motive and inducement to God to have mercy on your poor soul, that he will see them to be filthy rags, a menstruous cloth, that God hates them and cannot away with them if you bring them to him in order to recommend you to his favor. My dear friends, what is there in our performances to recommend us to God? Our persons are in an unjustified state by nature. We deserve to be damned 10,000 times over. And what must our performances be? We can do no good thing by nature. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. You may do many things materially good, but you cannot do anything formally and rightly good because nature cannot act above itself. It is impossible that a man who is unconverted can act for the glory of God. He cannot do anything in faith, and whatsoever is not of faith is sin. After we are renewed, yet we are renewed, but in part indwelling sin continues in us. There is a mixture of corruption in every one of our duties so that after we are converted, 
were Jesus Christ only to accept us according to our works, our works would damn us. For we cannot put up a prayer, but it is far from that perfection which the moral law requireth. I do not know what you may think, but I can say that I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot preach to you or any others, but I sin. But then, before you can speak peace to your souls, there is one particular sin you must be greatly troubled for. Yet I think there are few of you that think what it is. It is the reigning, the damning sin of the Christian world of unbelief. My friends, we mistake a historical faith for a true faith wrought in the heart by the Spirit of God. You fancy you believe because you believe there is such a book we call the Bible. That will do you no more good than to believe there was such a man as Caesar or Alexander the Great. Some of you may think you never did misbelieve. Then you could not give me better proof that you never yet believed in Jesus Christ unless you were sanctified early as from the womb. For they that otherwise believe in Christ know that there was a time when they did not believe in Jesus Christ. Let us now commence with George Whitfield's sermon entitled, The Lord, Our Light. George Whitfield begins with a scripture from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19 and 20. The sun shall be no more thy light by day. Neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. But the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. The sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning, that is M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19 and 20. Now let us begin with the message. Quote, upon reading these words, I, George Whitfield, cannot help thinking of what the royal psalmist said Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. Selah. I am afraid, my dear hearers, that even believers themselves who have tasted of the grace of God reflect not and meditate as they ought on the glorious and amazing felicity they are called by the Spirit of God to experience in this life. We content ourselves too much with our hopes, and if we attain to a good hope through grace, we are ready to think we have arrived at the last step of the gospel ladder and have nothing more to do but to rest in that hope without ever attaining to an abiding full assurance of faith. If we would examine the scriptures and not choose to bring them down to us, but beg 
God to raise our hearts up to them, we shall find the believer is made partaker of the grace of life as well as an heir of it. The one is on earth, the other in heaven. And one is only a prelibation or foretaste of the other. This blessed prophet Isaiah, speaking of the privileges of the children of God, saith, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive the things that God hath prepared, and that even here below, for those that love him. God grant we may be of that happy number. Hence, like an evangelist, the prophet draws aside the veil, and as one inspired by the Spirit of God, and filled with the rays of divine light, gives us a transporting view of the gospel state and the glory which the church militant enjoys below before its triumphant state above. The text probably refers to the great change that should be made in the affairs of the Jews after their captivity. How wonderfully God would appear for them after their harps had been long hanging on the willows, and they could make no other answer to their insulting foes than this mournful one. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? The gospel is doubtless glad tidings of great joy. And however the people of God might be encouraged to hope that the time would come when they should tread on the necks of their enemies, the prophet teaches them to look further and lets them know that their happiness was not to consist in any external created good, but in a larger possession of the graces and comforts of the Holy Ghost. So that this chapter speaks not only of the temporal deliverance and rest which they should enjoy after their trouble, but a spiritual rest which by faith they should enter in here and the earnest and pledge of the rest and enjoyment of the better world hereafter. As we know no more of heaven than it is discovered by the eye of faith for even St. Paul acknowledges that the things he saw were unutterable. It is observable that heaven in Scripture is described to us more by what it is not than by what it is. So in the words of the text, thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. Here are three negatives and but one positive. Namely, the Lord shall be thy everlasting light, which is a 
beautiful allusion to the sun that should teach us to spiritualize natural things. And if we fear God and live as near to him as we ought, there is no object of our bodily eyes but might improve our spiritual sight. You cannot suppose the prophet meant a time should come when the sun should not literally go down, that there should not be night and day as now. God indeed permitted a man once to say, Son, stand thou still, and it was done. But perhaps there never will be any such thing again till the sun is removed from its station and the moon forsake her orbit and be turned into blood. The word must therefore be understood in a figurative sense. And then comparing spiritual things with spiritual, it must certainly import that Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, the S-U-N of Righteousness, shall be what the Son is to the visible world. That is, the light and life of all his people. I say, all the people of God. You see, now the sun shines on us all. I never heard that the sun said, Lord, I will not shine on the Presbyterians. I will not shine on the independents. I will not shine on the people called Methodists, those great enthusiasts. The sun, the S-U-N, never said, yet I will not shine on the papists. The sun shines on all, which shows that Jesus Christ's love is open to all that are made willing by the Holy Ghost to accept him. Let us read that again and listen carefully. The sun, the S-U-N sun, shines on all, which shows that Jesus Christ's love is open to all, all who? All that are made willing by the Holy Ghost to accept of him. You see, we must be made willing, not by our own free will, but we must be made willing by the Holy Ghost to accept of him. And therefore it is said, the son of righteousness, the S-U-N of righteousness, shall arise with healing in his wings. If you were all up this morning before the sun arose at five o'clock, how beautiful was his first appearance. How pleasant to behold the flowers opening to the rising sun. I appeal to you yourselves. When you were looking out at the window or walking about, or opening your shop, if in a spiritual frame, 
whether you did not say, Arise thou son of righteousness, S-U-N of righteousness, with healing under thy wings on me. All that the natural man is to the world, Jesus Christ is and more to his people. Without the sun and without the S-U-N, we would have no corn or fruit of any kind. What a dark place would be the world without the sun. And how dark would the world be without Jesus Christ. And as the sun does really communicate its rays to the earth, the plants and all this lower creation. So the sun, the S-O-N, the son of God does really communicate his life and power to every new created soul. Otherwise, Christ is but a painted sun. S-U-N a painted S-U-N. Otherwise, Christ is but a painted sun. And is Christ nothing but a painted Christ to us while we receive heat and benefit by the Holy Ghost on account of the virtue of his blood? Sometimes the sun shines brighter than at other times and does not always appear alike. Clouds intervene and interrupt its rays. So it is between a renewed soul, a new creation, and the Lord Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, the S-U-N of Righteousness. Oh, my brethren, I believe you know it by fatal experience. Hold but your hand now. And the sun shines in its meridian between it and you. And if by the breadth of that you can keep the sun from you, ah, how very little earth will keep off thy heart from Jesus Christ. It was a very excellent saying on one of the ancients that God never leaves a person till he first leaves him. Some people think God does so of his sovereignty. But I am apt to think when the sun shines, we shall find some people have taken up with something short of the sun of righteousness. I believe there are times when the poor believer thinks his sun will quite go down and rise no more. He loses his relish, his taste and evidence of divine things. Not only are the rays intercepted for a while, but doubts and fears, a dreadful cloud of them come on. I hold with full assurance of faith, yet I am of an opinion that it is not always in a like exercise. And therefore pray that doubting people will not take hold of that and say, blessed be God. I am in a doubting state and I am content. The Lord deliver you from a mind to stay in prison 
and prevent the devil from locking the door upon you and keeping you there as long as he can. The Lord help you to come, come, come and break out of prison that you may know how pleasant it is to behold the sun, the S-U-N, and praise his name. Sometimes instead of the sun, there is only moonlight, which shows the difference a believer feels in his soul, both in relation to grace and comfort. Both the sun and moon give light, but oh, how far superior is the one to the other. The moon gives a very faint, uncertain light, waxes and wanes, and best is almost nothing when compared with the light and the blessed reviving heat of the sun. Hence, my brethren, this world sometimes is a world of mourners, M-O-U-R-N-E-R-S. Hence, my brethren, this world sometimes is a world of mourners. It is said that the days of our mourning shall be ended. For if the text refers to the future state, as no doubt it does, it means that the days of believers here below are very often mournful, trying and afflicting, though they end in joy, as our Lord intimates in his opening his gospel sermon, almost with these very words, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Some, perhaps, may think it is odd kind of blessing, and though worldly people are fond of the fifth of Matthew and wonder that Methodists and gospel ministers do not preach oftener on that chapter, I believe when you come to preach and open that word, they will not like that chapter any more than any other because they are for a joyful Christ and not for any mourning at all. Do you know God in Christ? Let me tell you, you, the more you are acquainted with him, the more your souls will be kept in a mourning state, a mournful state. Oh, say you, people will mourn before they are converted. Ah, that they will. I do not love to hear of conversions without any secret mourning. I seldom see such souls established. I have heard of a person who was in company once with 14 ministers of the gospel, some of whom were eminent servants of Christ. And yet, not one of them could tell the time God first manifested himself to their soul. No, so he is saying they probably are not converted. However, Zacchaeus was a very quick conversion, perhaps not a quarter of an hour's conviction. This I mention that we may not condemn one another. We do not love the Pope because we love to be Popes ourselves. 
and set up our own experience as a standard to others. Those that had such a conversion as the jailer or the Jews, oh, say you, we do not like to hear you talk of shaking over hell. We love to hear of conversion by the love of God, while others that were so shaken as Mr. Bolton and other eminent men were may say, you are not a Christian because you had not the like terrible experience. You may as well say to your neighbor, you have not a child, for you were not in labor all night. The question is whether a real child is born. Not how long was the preceding pain, but whether it was productive of a new birth and whether Christ has been formed in your hearts. It is the birth proves the reality of the thing. Some allow that there is mourning before, but no mourning after conversion. Pray who says so? None but an antinomian, a rank antinomian. And when you hear a person say that after conversion, you will have no mourning, you may be assured that person is at best walking by moonlight. He does not walk by the sun. He has some doctrine in his head, but very little grace. I am afraid in his heart. How, how, my brethren, not mourn after we are converted? Why, till then there is no true mourning at all. The damned in hell are mourning now. They put on their mourning as soon as they get there. How am I tormented in this flame, says Dives. And Cain, my punishment is greater than I can bear. How many worldly people break their hearts for the loss of the world. They cannot keep their usual equipage, nor do as they would, and come not to worship on Sunday because they cannot appear so fine as formerly they did. This is a sorrow of the world that worketh death. But there is a blessed evangelical mourning, which is the habitual blessed state and frame of a converted soul. How strong the expression, they shall look on him whom they have pierced and shall mourn. How shall they mourn as one mourneth for a firstborn and only child? Have you ever been called to bury a child? Is there any tender mother here? Were you merry directly after the child was dead? No, perhaps till this very day, you continually call to remembrance your little one and shed a tear. Everything relating to it causes the repetition of your sorrow. When a poor believer is acquainted with Jesus Christ, he mourns for having crucified the Son of God. And you will mourn for the same sin after conversion as before. Surely, say some, I mourn 
for the sins I committed before my conversion. I do not know whether you do or no, but I know you should. Oh, says David, remember not against me the sins of my youth in a psalm which was written when he was an old man. And Paul says, I was a blasphemer, injurious, and therefore not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And this after he had been wrapped up to the third heaven. See Mary rushing into the house, washing her Lord's feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. I do not suppose she was dressed as our ladies are now. They did not make such apes of themselves. Her hair was very fine in an honest way. Though she breaks the alabaster box of ointment given her, perhaps by some poor silly creature that would die by her frowns and live upon her smiles, see her at the feet of her Savior and Jesus Christ answers for her. Some having thought she was profuse, that having had much forgiven, she loved much. The more the love of God is manifested, the more it will melt the soul down. I appeal to you Christians, whether the sweetest times you ever enjoyed were not those when you were much melted at the sight of a crucified Savior. When you could say, Lord, thou forgavest me. I feel it. I know it. But I cannot forgive myself. This will always be the effect of an ingenuous or trusting mind. And a person that is really converted will thus mourn. And if you do not know this, you may be assured you know nothing savingly of Jesus Christ. You may go and hear this and that warning, and you are right to gather honey from every flower, but you have not got within the inner court, but are yet without. God give you to see your folly herein. A true believer will mourn over his corruptions. I wonder what they can think who suppose they have no corruptions. I remember a poor creature of Rhode Island who looked the most like the old Puritans I ever saw when I was talking with him and said, some people say there are some men that have no sin. He said, you send such a man to me. I will pay his charges even from England and back again. I have often learned something from the difference of glasses. You look into the common glasses and you see yourselves there so fine and admire your person's dress, etc. But when you view yourselves through a microscope, how many worms are discovered in that fine skin of yours? Enough to make you ashamed of the vermin and filth that is seated there. So it is in faith that glass 
would show you so much corruption cleaving to every action of your lives that would make you sin sick and mourn that you have known God so long and are like him so little. What says Paul? Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Notwithstanding, he knew that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Yet cries out, O wretched man that I am. I should have thought, O happy man that thou art. Formerly a persecutor and now a preacher, a man that has been honored so much above every man in planting churches, which is the highest honor a man can have under the heavens. Here is a man that hath been wrapped up to the third heaven. What of him? O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of sin and death? Do you think that it was only a little qualm of conscience? No, it was the habitual temper of his heart. Some people are much humbled by fits and starts, but Paul felt this daily. Many things that we are not concerned about, Paul looked upon as such as made his heart ache as he thought he could not live near enough to God. He not only watched to do good, but he watched how he did that good. And nature was so mixed with it that he said, I cannot do as I would do. I would have served God like an angel, but I find myself to be a poor sinner after all. And if we are like-minded with Paul, we shall mourn over our corruptions. We shall mourn over our hidden sins that none know but God and ourselves. It is a very dangerous thing to trust gospel gossips who, being strangers to themselves, hear with wonder and contempt and often betray. However, a judicious friend whose bosom we can pour out our souls and tell our corruptions as well as our comforts is a very great privilege. When our corruptions do not drive us from Christ, but drive us to him, it is the greatest blessing to commune with Christ on this side of heaven. And my brethren, if your hearts are right with God, you will see such things as nobody else could think of. A good woman who was charmed with Dr. Manton said, Oh, sir, you have made an excellent sermon today. I wish I had your heart. Do you say so? said he. Good woman, you had better not wish for it. For if you had it, you would wish for your own again. The best of men see themselves in the worst light. How many thousand things are there that make you mourn here below? Who can tell the tears that godly parents shed for ungodly children? Oh, you young folks, you do not know what plague your children may be to you. 
Oh, they are pretty things while young, like rattlesnakes and alligators, which I have seen when little. But put them in your bosom and you will find that they are dangerous. How many are there in the world that would wish, if it were lawful, that God had written them childless? There is many a poor creature that makes his father's heart ache. I once asked a godly widow, Madame, how is your son? She turned aside with tears and said, Sir, he is no son to me now. What in the world can come up to that? Here, says one, I have bred up my children. I cannot charge myself with educating them wrong. Though few parents can say that, for my parents led them into the paths of death or murderers of their own children and by their manner of education helped to damn them forever. But if you can say, I have done all I could, and yet, oh my God, my children are worse than any other people's. This is a dreadful state indeed. And the more you mourn, the more they laugh at you. Oh, these are my godly parents. They increase their trouble like Dr. Horneck's son, who said, there is not a post in my father's house, but stinks of piety. I once saw a man that was awakened at an orphan house, fall down and throw himself on one of their beds, crying out, oh, sir, what will become of my poor gray-headed father? who knows nothing of this birth. It is a difficulty with some to know how to behave towards unconverted relations. If you do not go to them, they will say you are precise. If you do and are faithful, they will soon show you they have enough of your company. This sends a godly person home mourning and then there comes a thought, shall I speak to them any more, or let them go to the devil? This is not like parting from your friends by death, but burying them alive, dead. We know we must submit, but to part from friends, those we loved and thought to have lived with till we came to heaven, is mournful indeed. Moreover, the poor state of the church makes many a minister and close walker with God to weep over the desolations of the sanctuary and to mourn for those that will not mourn for themselves. Thus our Lord wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children as a hen gathereth her chickens but it is over with thee now. The decree has gone forth and Jerusalem shall suffer. Brethren, the time will fail and therefore I leave it to you to supply more cases. For if I was to preach till tomorrow morning, I doubt but not a thousand here would say, there are many things you have not mentioned yet. You know the state of your own hearts 
and the many particular trials in your own case. And you may also know, though your trial seems over, it is only changed. But let it be observed, the days of your mourning shall be ended. Mind, it is but days, though sometimes made very sad ones indeed, by the neglect and ingratitude of those who have made the people of God serve them with rigor, as though all the world was made for them, as well as their incapacity to help themselves by poverty, pain, sore sickness, and long continuance. This has been and is the lot of many a child of God. Blessed be sovereign mercy, it but a few days. In shall arrive, and that end shall be happy when death, the believer's friend, shall come with an angel's face to dismiss them from all their sin and sorrow. When I was at Bristol, I could not help remembering Mr. Middleton, who used, you know, to have the gout very much, and in that closet where kept his crutches, now thought I, he needs them no more. The days of his mourning is ended, and so shall ours be, and by two, when we shall no longer want our spiritual crutches or armor, but shall say to the helmet of hope, the shield of faith, I have no more need of thee, and the all-prevailing weapon of prayer be changed into songs of endless praise. When God himself shall be our everlasting light, the sun that shall never go down more, but shall beam forth his infinite and eternal love in a beatific state forever. The prospect of this made one of the fathers cry out, Oh, glory, how great! How great! What art thou? A friend asked him what he saw. He answered, I see the glory of the only begotten Son of God. And if a sight of Christ on earth is so great as could make Mr. Wardrobe, an excellent Scotch minister, say after he was given over, starting up in the arms of an excellent friend who tolded me in a rapture of excellent joy, crowns, crowns of glory shall adorn this head of mine ere long. And stretching up, added palms, palms, palms shall er along fill these hands of mine. And so sweetly fell asleep in Jesus. What a pleasing, awful trial is that for an affectionate friend. So, our dear sister, who is to be buried tomorrow night at Tottenham Court, talked with her friends for an hour or two, and took leave of her husband and children, and said, Now come, ye heavenly chariots. We will thank God then for all our losses, crosses, and disappointments. And I believe those things which we mourn for most, and puts us most to the trial, will give us most comfort when we come to die. God shall be our everlasting life, as well as the days of our mourning shall be ended. Take care. Do not be secure. 
Do not think the day of your mourning to be ended yet. You may put off mourning for your friends, but may have fresh cause of mourning for your souls. While you remember that holy mourning is consistent with holy walking, following the Lord in all his ways, you have often heard me speak of one of our ministers who was not one of your fine velvet mouths that said once in the pulpit, as sure as you see the sun shine on my breast, which at that time it did, so sure does the Spirit of God dwell in the souls of true believers. How often has he told you, I am for having you godly sorrow. I wish your hearts were full of it because it will end in everlasting joy. Comfort, my brethren, with all these things. The day of your mourning shall soon be ended forever. But what am I to say? I apprehend I shall grow forgetful tonight. I have spoken so much to saints. I am afraid I shall have little time to speak to sinners. I mean, I have taken so much time up in speaking to you that know God, that I have little to speak to you that know him not. How different your state, poor hearts, poor hearts. My soul mourns for you. My blood, whilst I am speaking, is ready to curdle in my veins. The seraphic Mr. Harvey, when he did me the honor to sojourn under my roof, said, My dear friend, it is an awful thing when we see an unconverted man die and his eyes close to think that poor soul will never see one gleam of comfort or life more. To have a sight of God, of Christ, and the heavenly angels and saints, but to see what the rich man saw, God they want. See Lazarus, he would not permit to be seen at his door, now taken particular notice of in heaven, to see himself a beggar in hell. The Lord help you to think. Oh, think how soon your son, your S-U-N son, will go down and even your bodies will feel damnation, not only in respect to pain, but loss. Bishop Usher's opinion was, I heartily concur in it, that those who value themselves most on their beauty and dress and do not love God on earth, will be most deformed in hell, and their bodies suffer proportionally there. There is no dressing in hell, nothing but fire and brimstone there, and the wrath of God always awaiting on thee. O sinner, whoever thou art, man or woman, it is a fine saying of McLean, who was executed some years ago, when the cap was pulling over his eyes, must I never see the light of yon sun any more? Lord Jesus Christ, thou son of righteousness, arise with healing under thy wings on my departing soul. May the Lord Jesus Christ 
do that for us all. When you are damned, the days of your mourning will be at their beginning. There is no end of your mourning in hell. There is but one song, if it may be called so, in hell, to wit that of dives, which will be always repeating, How am I tormented in this flame? Consider this, ye that forget God. And oh, that God may bless you tonight with godly sorrow. Believers, pray for them. Lord, help you sinners to pray for your vile selves. You may think, what do you cry for? Why, I cry for you. Perhaps you will say as a wicked one did to a poor woman in Scotland when thousands were awakened there, seeing her weep, he said, what do you weep for? For this people, says she. Weep for yourself, says he. She replied, I do. But what is my soul to all these poor souls? Oh, that ministers may never rise up in judgment against you. Oh, may Moses in the hand of the Spirit make you mourn. May the love of God make you cry. May you not go home tonight without an arrow steeped in the blood of Christ. It was wonderful what a good woman awaking thought she saw written over her head. Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. May every faithful soul be made to hear it. To awake, arise their sleep of sin. The sun is going down and death may put an end to all that tonight. Lord, help you to come, though it is the 11th hour. Oh, that you would fly, fly this night to Christ, lest God destroy you forever. Jesus stands ready with open arms to receive you, whom he first pricked to the heart and made you cry out, what shall I do to be saved? He will then make you believe in his name that you may be saved. God grant this may be the case of all here tonight. Amen. Again, another great sermon by George Whitfield, worth listening to again and again until it sinks into our minds and our hearts that the new creation is paradoxical in nature and thus has the oil of joy for mourning, garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. It is beauty for ashes. And as Martin Luther has said in his 95 thesis, his number one complaint against the Catholic Church was that the entire life of the new creation is an entire life of repentance. May the Lord bless thee and keep thee in the name of Jesus. Amen.